This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Well, folks, welcome to one more edition of Politics and Ronald McBerto Willis, your host. Thank you so kindly for being a part of the show. We are going to have a great show for you today. Of course, we always want to have a great show. And you know what's the best part of the show? You. Because when you engage, we get to talk. Let's see. What is uh Welcome aboard, Michael Rodden, Bridge MCP, AVQ, uh, Jacoby G. Como estas, hermano? Let's see what is... Uh, Rud- How did Rodden start the show today? Rittenhouse trial for shooting protesters starts in January. Hmm, interesting. Man, think about it. This guy got... Two million, I got a $2 million bail, and he was able to make it. The right wing protects its own. They protect their supremacists perfectly. Wow, that was, that was perfect. That was, wow. Anyhow, uh, we are going to have a great show for you today. Um, I have some voter suppression stuff that's going to be kind of funny because it's not what you think. We have some other things to talk about. We have the vice president of Oxfam here with us today. Oxfam, uh, he's going to talk about inequality, etc., etc., etc. So we're going to have a good show all together. Yo soy aquí. Hey, Bruce, just let me put a little uh, E and a T in there. Yo estoy aquí. And you'll be perfect, brother. Uh, Norman Reynolds, hey, everyone, surviving. Norman, you're a survivor. Hey, guys, Norman is a, is a cyclist, right? Norman raved it. He went out there in the cold. It's freezing. And he goes out there and he hits the miles. Came home and almost tore him up. Because you know what, Norman Reynolds? We are, you, you know what I do? I go on a spinner now, brother. I don't have, I, I can't handle it as much anymore. Nanette Bird Smith, welcome aboard. Welcome aboard. Welcome aboard. Welcome aboard. Okay. Let's start talking about the show. Enough of my rambling. I know you're tired of my rambling. So let's go ahead and do it. Okay, para ver, para ver, para ver, déjame comenzar. There we go. The title of the show today is Oxfam VP, Vice President Paul O'Brien discusses inequality, GOP voter fraud, reporter ridicules Trump. So what you say if we just go ahead and get busy and watch what that reporter had to say, and then we move on from there. So here we go. What is Donald Trump doing well, you know, he actually continues to get help from quite a few people. Patrick Byrne, founder and former CEO of Overstock.com, is kind of doing some work for him, uh, trying to prove that there's these Dominion machines that aren't working. Of course, that's been disproven. And that somehow there is some kind of hackery that's going on. So he continues. And the Republican Party remains silent. Why? Because they fear Donald Trump may cost them the Senate. But it seems to be happening anyway. To that end, I love what this reporter had to say. Check this out and then let's take it on the other side. We heard from one of the president's lawyers saying that Chris Krebs should be shot. We heard Gabriel Sterling yesterday saying that things are out of hand in Georgia. Is any Republican in Cong- in the Senate, I'm thinking of Mitch McConnell, are they willing to come out and say that this is not okay? Or are they just going to remain, as Sterling said, complicit? 
No, they're, they're not. Their their basic line is the president has the right to go through the court process, which is not really what Sterling is even saying here. He's saying the president should not incite violence, and and he believes with evidence that the president is inciting violence with his claims here. And l- let's even leave. I mean, it's despicable to to incite acts of violence. Let's let's leave that aside for a second, and let's even take the the lowest common denominator here. Republicans have two elections. In a month and three days in Georgia for the control of the United States Senate. And the president is out there telling his base that needs to come out on January 5th to not trust the voting process in that very state. If there, this is, let's, I'm going to get myself in trouble here. This is stupid. I mean, this is just the height of stupidity in a way that I think is just shocking Republicans all over Washington and Atlanta, because, again, he needs people to trust the voting process because everything is on the line for Republicans on January 5th. It's stupid, but it's also dangerous. I mean, yes, it doesn't make it's dangerous and stupid. It's a combination of both. Yeah, it's dangerously stupid. Dangerously stupid. But, you know, um, yeah, the reason why it's dangerous is if you take a look at OAN, that channel, that's the Trump channel, OAN, you see that we live in a completely different sphere, a completely different reality. These people are being so misinformed they first learned or, or, or been in hoodwinked into believing that the mainstream media is simply awful, is simply fake news. So now they are being fed fake news by OAN, the Trump channel, or one of the Trump channels. And if you watch it for any amount of time, it's amazing what you will see. Folks, uh, it is it is, look, Biden will be president, but we are going to have a whole lot of misled Americans. And if there are some, some with a little quirk out there, they may create some problems. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news. Trying yeah, to- yeah, yeah. They will create some problems. Okay. All right. Um, anyhow, folks, uh, there was another thing that I wanted to talk about. I was doing my regular news scanning earlier today and ran across this story on Daily Coast and they did a little bit more, went directly to their Daily Course source and found the video on, on, on Twitter, etc., etc. And I thought it was sort of like poetic justice because you know what we talk about when we talk a whole lot about projection. You know, everybody's saying, oh, Democrats are doing this and Democrats are doing that. Or it always, I don't know why, it always turns out that you know, uh, somebody is a particular way they they go ahead and they project it onto somebody because, you know, it's like they can't instantiate it on themselves, right? Well, this voter suppression thing gave me some thoughts. I started to think about it. They are so heavy on this voter fraud thing. I, I'm going to be honest with you. I have, well, let me go ahead and play the video. Then I'll talk about it. Then we'll go into a few other things. And then we'll hit the the. the the um, interview. Here we go. The president and Republican Party, they're always talking about voter fraud, voter fraud. You know, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to get conspiratorial, but I'm going to ask a question. Uh, where did 74 
million people come from to support a Donald Trump? Does that sound real to you? Uh, most of his, his, his support really came from a particular sector. Do you really think there's 74 million people willing to support what this guy stands for? I mean, if there is a question whether uh, one would question the amount of votes a particular party got, I think that is where the concern really would be. Look, Democrats overperformed, unfortunately, based on how districts were drawn in certain areas. That overperformance went for not when it came to the House of Representatives. But getting back to the point at hand, GOP, the president, they're always talking about voter suppression, or not voter suppression, they're always talking about voter fraud, voter fraud. But anytime we find it, somehow it has to do with Republicans. Here's a new one. Uh, here at the Daily Coast, Florida GOP or tries to commit voter fraud in Georgia runoff. And what did he do? I want you to listen to what he did, and then we'll take it on the other side. Check this out, and then uh, you, you'll see what I'm talking about. have to do whatever it takes. And if that means changing your, your, your address for the next two months, so be it. I'm doing that. I'm moving to Georgia. have to do whatever it takes. And if that means changing your, your, your address for the next two months, so be it. I'm doing that. Okay, so this guy, uh, this this was reported on the on the Daily Coast, and it says, in an example of excellent investigative journalism, Atlanta's Channel Two uncovered an attempt by a Florida GOP to commit voter fraud in Georgia's January runoff. Bill Price is seen in a now deleted Facebook Live video speaking to the Bay County GOP members in Florida on November seven. We absolutely have to hold the Senate, and we have to start fighting back, and we have to do whatever it takes, Price said in the video. And if that means changing your address for the next two months, so be it. I am doing that. I am moving to Georgia, and I am going to fight, and I want you all to fight with me. And then he said he was joking, but of course, when they checked, apparently he was registered at his uh, brother's home in Florida, uh, in, in Georgia. So we always hear, we always hear about voter fraud and voter fraud by Democrats. What it's called, people, is projection. That is the height of projection. What do I mean? The thing that they know they are doing. They want to project that onto others as if others are doing the same thing too. So don't believe any of the crap. Remember who we find in these days doing most of the cheating. We saw it in North Carolina when that guy, uh, I think he went, I don't know if he went to prison yet, but he was found getting a whole lot of ballots and putting it in. And we see it all in Pennsylvania when the, when the Secretary of State of Texas says, I will give a million dollars if you can find voter fraud. The Secretary of State of Pennsylvania found two instances of voter fraud in Pennsylvania. They were both conducted by Republicans voting for Trump. So let's get real. Projection is this voter fraud thing. We're making a big issue out of it, Donald Trump, with his sycophants and enablers. And the fact of the matter is, the cheating is generally on their side. Now, I ask the question one more time. Is that 74 million votes that uh, Donald Trump received in the election, more than any other president ever received in this country, except for Joe Biden? Is that real? Was there voter fraud there? I think that is where the question 
really belongs if Donald Trump really got 74 million votes. We spend a lot of time deconstructing yeah, the news. Yeah, if Donald Trump really got 74 million votes. Okay, uh, before we go to the video, let me just salute all my good people. Bridge MCP, welcome aboard. Uh, let's see, Mark Smith from London. Welcome aboard, my brother, Nanette Bird-Smith. I'm still flabbergasted how reasonably educated people still believe Trump has a chance to remain in office and that there is rampant fraud. I think a cult mentality allows us to go past our those part those senses that we have that are actually practical. Let's see, Michael Rudnan, if you're afraid your political rivals can't run a clean election, ask the UN to run the election. Norman, my mom was a cross-country cyclist in Ireland and got me into it. I've I've went to New York, Maine, Vermont, bike yeah, we did a lot of bike rides. And yeah, I rode a lot. Norman and I did a whole lot of cycling. We did 180-something mile rides. Uh, actually, about four, five, six times we've done that together, and we've gone all over the darn place. And so did Bruce. Bruce uh, is in the house, Bruce Pollard. We all used to be the cycling folks out here in Kingwood, Texas, and we've been all over the state uh, riding the bikes and having fun and all that good stuff. So absolutely so. Continuing to, to welcome people, Mark Smith, Nanette Bird-Smith, uh, Bridge MCP, Bruce Pollard, Norman Reynolds, uh, let's see, um, Jacoby, Jacoby G, como estas hermano, uh, who else is here? I think I got you, Jacoby, I'm not going to say, AVQ and Michael Rutten, Linda E, Linda E, welcome aboard, my dear friend, Linda E, and another posse member, we got a lot of posse members in here. Um, MCP Gray would like to love to know how you are out there. Yeah, you know, and the duck, the duck that quacks, like P.T. Barnum said, suckers. That one is funny. I just had to say it that way. I wanted to make a little bit of fun. Hey, folks, this is going to be a, a, a quick 30 seconds. Hey, go get my book, please. Uh, the name of it, it's worth it because we're going to, the, we're going to uh, uh, a fairly long, uh, a fairly long, um, a fairly long interview right now. So go get my book, please, if you are up to it. Hey, Roberto Lewis. Roberto is a part of our cycling uh, team out here, too. Roberto and all, and all of us did that 180 miles from Houston to Austin. That was great. Good times. But we're all getting older now. Anyway, go get my book, please. I just put the link in the, in the feed there, which is at, at Amazon. But if you want to support... Uh, politics done right directly without the middle person in there, go ahead and please consider getting it at store, uh, rather at politicsdoneright.com slash store, politicsdoneright.com slash store. If you are on YouTube right now, please consider joining our posse. Click that link that says join. I'll see that you, if you join during the show, most of you have a tendency to join after the show. I guess that's when you get your card and all that kind of stuff. But it's cheap, cheap, cheap. Join, just click that join button while the show is going, and uh, when I come back from the interview, I can say, yeah, we've got some more posse members that did it while we, are, when, while we were here live. So go ahead and join, click that join button and become a part of the posse, or hit that dollar sign and become a part of, what do I call it again? Drop us a super chat, super, all that good stuff. Yeah, we have to ask for support. You know, that has been, for all of, the, for, for my close guys on here who know me personally, they know that this is the kind of stuff I would have 
never done in the past. But when you're doing this kind of work, this is the only way to do it. Become a patron, politicsandright.com slash patron, politicsandright.com slash P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And of course, we all do PayPal as well, politicsandright.com slash PayPal. Let's get to our interview. Very important interview. I loved it. It went five minutes longer than our long interviews are supposed to go, but it is, in my humble opinion, worth it. So meet Oxfam VP, uh, Paul O'Brien. Welcome to one more edition of Politics and Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Today, I am honored to have Paul O'Brien. Who is Paul O'Brien? Paul O'Brien is Vice President at Oxfam, Oxfam America. He has been an advisor to the President of Afghanistan and an organizer in Nairobi's slums. He has a JD from Harvard Law School and has published on power and rights for more than three decades. His new book, Power Switch, How We Can Reverse Extreme Inequality, offers practical actions for a peaceful global power switch from those who have way too much to those who don't have enough. Interesting, that is sort of the, that is always the theme at Politics Done Right, in some form, in some fashion. Welcome to Politics Done Right. Paul O'Brien, how are you doing today? I'm great. It's great to be on. I love your show. Uh, and, and I've been looking forward to this. Thank you so kindly, my friend. First of all, uh, to the audience, explain to them the genesis of Oxfam and you know what it's all about. I think that is important because they'll get a chance to see where you're, you know, where you're actually centered. Yeah. So a little bit of history because I think it's interesting. Uh, it started as a pretty traditional international humanitarian organization and the Second World War. It was actually uh, because of what was going on during the war. There was an embargo. It was founded in the UK uh, to try and break an embargo so that they could get food to starving communities in Greece. It grew up over the next many decades as a pretty typical humanitarian and development organization until I would say around... 1980 or so, when it realized that all this resource transfer that it was doing, taking stuff from the rich north and trying to get it to places that were in poverty, was not really making much of a difference. So they got into more of a human rights approach and started investing in campaigning and working with activists to see if they could do things like change systems or challenge powerful elites in different contexts. Even as they did that, I'd say that went on for another 30 years, they still realized that most of the big decision making was going on in the north, in places like Washington, London, Berlin, and so on. So over the last, I'd say, 10 years, what we've tried to become is a worldwide network of affiliates. We're based now, our headquarters is in Nairobi in Africa. We have 20 affiliates, which are essentially the, the power of Oxfam, which sit in what you might think of as the G20 countries. So it's places, yes, it's still the United States and Britain and France and Germany, but it's also South Africa, India, Brazil, China, Russia. And we're trying, what we're trying to do by bringing together what's basically the G20 is to be a worldwide influencing network 
that names the big problems in the world and then tries to work with uh, partners and movements to be relevant to changing power dynamics and rights and responsibilities. So that's Oxfam in a nutshell. Well, I mean, I think uh, that you're in all the, the, the powerful, mostly capitalist countries. I think that makes yeah. sense since that is what's driving the world economy good and bad. So, I mean, um, let's, let's get into, uh, let, let me get a little bit of your thought process before we get into your book, before we get into some other parts of the discussion. What do you think really ails the planet uh, from a systems point of view? Well, the heart of it is, from, me, from my perspective, and this is a little bit what the book is about, we haven't done a very good job of understanding how systems and power works. And although some people did, in I, a lot of my analysis is from about 1980 on, particularly the Reagan and Thatcher years where they had disproportionate influence, there was a period of disruption at that time and a very small number of people put in place a set of rules that we've been living with globally since then, which has essentially been about the idea that what you want to do is deregulate markets as much as you can and just keep growing the pie. Because if you can remove constraints on markets and keep growing the pie, by their theory, everybody's better off. The problem with that big answer that's been going on now for 40 years is that because power gains money, gains more power, no matter how much you grow the pie over the last 40 years, the amount of that pie that was being shared fairly by people in the United States, by uh, people in vulnerable uh, countries, and by uh, those in poverty, even in middle income economies, was less and less and less because essentially um, they were controlling not just how big the pie grew, but they had the knife that sliced the pie. And because they had the knife, they were making sure that the bulk of the resources were going to those who made the rules. So what our analysis at Oxfam is about, and, and it's also in, in my book, I borrow heavily from Oxfam's thinking, what, what we, the, the way we live in the world right now, you're seeing an escalation in the number of billionaires from less than 700 about 12 years ago to more than 2,200 now. They control the vast majority of the wealth in the world. And at the same time, ordinary people are stuck and they're not going to get unstuck. And it's the source of a lot of our politics and our political problems now. They're not going to get unstuck unless we change the rules. And that's going to take a lot of very effective activism. Now, let me let me say one thing. I, I, I think that if I listen to you and what you're saying, first of all, I agree with absolutely everything that you just said uh, from an activist point of view. I, I'm an activist as well. Uh, what I call is activist journalism. But um, I, I, I would take object. Uh, uh, I would ask you if you really think they didn't know exactly what they're doing. Let me give an example. Um, when we got deregulations, we also got that, uh, in, in effect, all these countries, Colombia, Panama, all these other countries, uh, the idea is, oh, we have a deregulated market. You can, I can go buy up all of your raw resources, bring it to America, bring it to London, process it, sell it back to you. We are in a deregulated environment. A, com a country like Panama may say, well, you know what? I have to be careful about selling my raw coffee beans to you and buying it back as Nescafe because what that is a net 
loss in capital in my country. Yeah. With deregulation, things like that, for the most part, go away. Yeah. It, it, it's not, I am not all that smart. It's not rocket science to figure out that that is, those are the kinds of things that occur with deregulation. We take a look at uh, the, 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 not NATO, the, uh, the treaty between Canada and the United States and et cetera. Same kinds of things uh, that, that we look at. Do you really honestly want to give them a pass to say, well, that was their theory. It just didn't work. Yeah, no, I, if I said that, I misspoke. I totally agree with you. So we'll have to find something to debate uh, more fiercely. <laughs> because, uh, no, uh, and I actually, I, one thing you do put your finger on, which maybe allows me to talk about one of the things that I find challenging in international activism and in my side of it, which is where what was originally a development organization gets into activism in the history, I, like the history I described, you know, we, we've done a lot of work over the years on empowerment. Like we're big on capacity building. We love mm -hmm. to go into countries, find people who want to be activists and empower them. The thing that my sector struggles with when it does empowerment work is who are we trying to take power from? And we, have a, we tend to have the habit of saying, well, no, no, we're not here to take power from people. We're here to get, get power to people. But your question is, is a little bit, it's, it sort of hints at one of our problems. We struggle with naming who the perpetrators of systemic harms are. Because in my sector, generally, it's often punished to, to say, actually, there are bad guys here who are intentionally creating these systemic biases. And they are doing it because they are winners from the system in the way they set it up. So my sector generally tends, um, uh, and to be honest, that's part of why I wrote the book um, because, and I think Oxfam's, we're, we, we are on a journey to be better at this and we're pretty good at it actually because we invest so much in uh, target focused campaigning, meaning we name targets and we go after them to try and take away their power. But there are times when we struggle with it because we're also trying to go to rich people and to governments and get them to give us their money so that we can go do good in the world. And doing both things at the same time can be hard. I, let me tell you, I don't envy your position at all because I honestly don't know how to do it. As an, as an independent journalist, an independent, uh, uh, in, I like to call it activist journalist, uh, one of the things is uh, because of what we do and what we say, we have to le live on peanuts. Because again, for the important work that you do, the big work that you do require a ton of cash. And the ton of cash that you get are from those rich people who got rich, who knows how, and feel a little bit of guilt or feel a little bit of responsibility to help out so that the lows are less low, that yeah. the poverty is less poverty, etc. I don't know what the correct paradigm is. Uh, first of all, I, all I can say is, your work is impressive and needed, uh, but uh, I, I wonder how would we ever break out if what we're looking at is what I consider an economic system that is uh, directly in opposition to an egalitarian type society, because I don't see how the math works. Okay, well, let me throw some math at you. <laughs> Please do. Well, here's some interesting math. You know, one of the conversations I'm spending a lot of time now 
talking with social activists that are wondering how we get the Biden and Harris administration to focus on some of these issues and how we cope with what are the most important issues that folks are talking about in social justice now. And everybody comes back to two bits of math. One, there were more than 70 million people who disagreed with our view of the way politics ought to work in terms of being willing to uh, embrace another four years of uh, Donald Trump. There were more than 80 million people who said it's time for a change. And on both sides, those numbers were made up of a constellation of different kinds of actors who came to their vote for different reasons, right? So there's really interesting things on both sides of that equation. My, the reason I wrote the book, I, I, I took a bet and the publisher took a bet in writing the book. I said, look, Biden and Harris are gonna win because in the end of the day, there are enough different forces for change, for progressivism, and at some level for restoring some sanity. Those aren't always the same. They will come together and there will be more people who will vote for Biden and Harris. They will be president uh, and vice president. The question isn't that. The question is, will they have the political support behind them to put in place really progressive change? Yes, yes. And that is a question of math. And then it gets really interesting because it gets to your the core of your question. One of the problems with democratic administrations is amongst the folks that get democratic administrations elected are very wealthy folks too, who don't actually want to upset certain apple carts. And for example, progressive tax reform was a real struggle in the early stages of the Obama administration. And in the end of the day, it didn't happen. And you saw a widening of economic inequality in the United States because of the lack of corporate regulation around the world. And that was the Obama years, which many of us thought was, was a good presidency, but it wasn't good enough for ad addressing inequality. How do you get those folks to go? I believe, I believe that, that even rich folks, and I talk to many of them now, there's a group we work with called Patriotic Millionaires. I there's love them. I, I've interviewed yeah. him. Uh, Morris. Uh, Morris, yeah, Morris yeah. Pearl. Morris yeah. Pearl. Fantastic group, but they are growing in numbers. These are super rich people who realize that it's actually not in their long-term interest to have a set of rules that might make them a little richer in the short term, but actually is tearing our economy apart, is tearing our society apart, is burning up the planet because it's driven by fossil fuel growth, and it isn't actually gonna be good for their kids. So the math is changing even for the super rich people, but the big question I have is, is it gonna change fast enough to get good policies in place now uh, while we have this moment of disruption. And the last thing I'll say, sorry, Berto, is that all, the one thing that the research that I've done over the last 40, 50 years, and, it's, and this isn't new, Naomi Klein said this, another said it, big changes happen in very small bursts and it's usually shocks. in moments of crisis. Yeah, during So the shocks. question is, will we, yes, yes, that's it. I interviewed Naomi Klein as, Klein as well in, uh, in, in Nevada, and you are absolutely right. Big things happen when we have these big uh, crashes or things like that. The problem about it is we didn't take advantage of it as we should in 2008. And with the type of election that we've had in 2020, I yeah. don't know if Biden has the impetus to get that done right now again, unless we win uh, those two Senate seats in Georgia. And then guys like you come out with the pressure because um, 
it, it is going to be difficult. Now, when it comes to uh, Mars Pearl and, and, and guys like the Patriotic Millionaires, I, I see them as moral beings, but I still see, I still see them as too attached to what they've learned in Milton Friedman's uh, mm. capitalist type business schools, mm. Mm. not understanding that maybe we should start talking about having a, uh, a hybrid system where, where capitalism works, it's great, yeah. but where it doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the fear that too many have is that once we bust a hole into capitalism, that we will just full-fledged go into some sort of a full collective throughout the, the world. And I don't think that is a practical thing. I'm, a, I'm a, you know, as, as much as an activist that I am, I believe in the pizza shop guy being able to do whatever the hell he wants to do. And I believe in having those big corporations for what corporations were intended to do in the first place when yeah. people get together to do big things that we can't do on the mom and pop scale. So, yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the, the thing about it is, I would like to I would like more people to come out and say what we must have is a bifurcated economy that is delineated perfectly. And I think it's possible, yeah. but we yeah. have to have those people that are willing to go out there and just say it right now to just say capitalism doesn't work the way it should right now. It's hard yeah. to find people. And, and in effect, and, and I, let me I'm not going to put you on the spot here, but I'm going to kind of do it in a short in, in an interesting way. If you were ever to utter words like that, you're probably you probably cut your income in half for your for your for your um for that very important work that you do. Uh, I think it's changing. I so I'll tell you a couple of little anecdotes. Um, Ten years ago now, Oxfam decided that it was going to target economic inequality as the major driver of global poverty. And I remember when I, I was thrilled at the idea, but I, I remember I called my boss because I'm in charge of advocacy mm -hmm. on the American side. And I said, I, I, said, I called my boss, who's a great man. And I said, hey, I've got good news for you. We're gonna go after all our rich donors. <laughs> and he, he said, and he laughed and said- Are you tell crazy? Me, <laughs> tell me how you're gonna still have a job in about six months. <laughs> and I remember at the time we were like, well, if we're gonna go after inequality, we're not gonna use words like redistribution here in the United States, because we'll all be called raving socialists. That was the basically the argument. And over the next few years, I saw first people stopped worrying us about us fighting inequality, stopped worrying about whether we use the word redistribution or not, and even started to embrace the idea that there's plenty of sensible things in socialism. Now, I happen to be closer to where you are. I believe mm -hmm. in highly regulated capitalism. Right. I believe we should distrust corporations, but let them function. Right. But we should distrust them. But now in my organization, there are a lot of folks who identify as having a socialist economics and, and have no time for any form of, I mean, actually Oxfam's views are all education should be public, all healthcare should be public, and we do not need competition in those marketplaces to give people better rights. So I do think it's changed. The, the tricky question you're asking is, well, where's your money gonna come from if those are um, the ideas that you're putting out there? And I would argue that there is both in the, the younger generation of new donors, 
in people who feel that sort of fossil fueled economic growth is just is now bankrupt in a lot of ways. There's a whole new set of folks who want just social justice activism to come up with new and better ideas. And there's enough resources there for organizations like ours to stay relevant. That's well, that'd be the argument. Well, I, I mean, you know, I, I love hearing that because, I mean, what's been happening with Bezos being able to take advantage of um, this pandemic and become even more of a billionaire and at the same time thinking that that was his money, it, it, concerns, it, it concerns me how many of the 74 million uh, um, Trump voters that actually will come out and fight to protect Jeff Bezos's right to take all their money. Yeah, it, it just surprises me that they don't realize that Jeff Bezos' money is their excess labor. That Jeff Bezos' money is what they've been it, it, is is the collapse of your local businesses. It's the collapse of yeah. all those little companies that are going. You know, I mean, uh, we 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 so need organizations who I mean, not not just little programs that are are there telling this story that the government doesn't care about because we can't make a difference in their opinion, but more people that can go out there and, and try to educate these folks. And I don't want to so, sound condescending, but inform these folks, maybe is what I should say, that, um, that they deserve better because everything around here is their work. Hell, you, 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 you've been to Nairobi, you've been to all these places. We couldn't live without those people in Africa, in Asia, in South America. A lot of our wealth, a lot of our well-being is from these people you are trying to help right now. And some of yeah. them giving you the most problems. No, I totally. Um, and then how do you have conversations that don't sound like the same sort of very divided, uh, basically divided realities? We, one of the things I talk about in the book are what are the kinds of facts that will change the conversation about the kind of wealth uh, uh, disparities we have now. One of the facts Oxfam uses is that Jeff Bezos could cut a check for $105,000 to every single one of his 875,000 employees. Did you put that out? I read that. Is that you who did that? It was our organization. Yes. That I didn't even know it was Oxfam that did that. That was when I saw that, that was a trigger for me. That was beautiful. Good. And that's, well, I, those kinds of facts that put it into context, even for folks who say like, but I want the American dream, everybody should have it. Yeah, okay. But when wealth accumulation and power accumulation gets this big, it might be contributing to you being stuck, my friend. And that's where you can start using those kinds of those stories yeah well paul i tell you what let's go into the tenets of your book because you know we also want to make sure the you know you are you're with a a a team a posse out there that's putting out a lot of necessary uh books on these types of issues so tell us uh tell us a synopsis of your book so that we can make sure when we're blogging this as well as and by the way this will be on air pacific and network kpft 90.1 fm in addition to all our our uh, internet stuff so it's going to be quite a few places but let's talk a little bit about or, or give me a synopsis of your book and give people a reason to say i have got to learn what this guy's talking about well as usual Alberto, I've, I've heard you do this uh we have covered some of the the core topics uh from the questions uh, already so i'll just to put a finer point on it power switch argues that if we want to see a biden and harris administration really take the steps to address economic inequality 
we are going to need to push them very hard. As FDR said, I might agree with you, but you're going to have to make me do it. I love well, that. we're going to have to make them do it. Yes. And let's hope they agree. If we're going to do that, then there's a few things we need to recognize. The book explains, and like your conversations with Naomi Klein and others, that change happens in bursts and in moments. And there's going to be such a moment of disruption in 2021 for all sorts of reasons that we are going to see policies put in place that are either going to keep us on this track of being more and more divided economically, uh, um, or it's going to start to redress that and bring us back together. But it's going to happen pretty fast. And you're right that Georgia matters. If we can legislate, it's going to make a lot of changes. But even if we don't get a Democratic Senate, there is so much that can be done. Um, and there are, you know, it's, it's, it's hard after what we've seen over the last four years. There are reasonable Republicans still in office who are prepared to step up and address some of the broken economic uh, uh, realities that are that we are seeing globally, we can get them across the line. There are areas of bipartisan consensus um, that we've still been able to keep in some parts of Congress with some senators enough to get stuff across the line. So first point, 2021 is going to be really important. The, 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 the next part of the book is essentially, well, what is, what is it that needs to happen? And essentially, it's, we, I believe that the key determinant of power in the world now is money. Find out where the money shouldn't be, get it put where it should be. And I, the book runs through in short order some of the big sources of funding that can be changed with effective policymaking by a Biden and Harris administration in partnership with other countries. What would it mean to tax and regulate corporations better? What would it mean to unlock global reserves? What would it mean to have smarter solutions on debt that understood how China was showing up on this equation? That's the first thing, get the money out of the wrong places. Second, get it spent in the right places and on the right things to reduce inequality and to give people a genuine opportunity to lift themselves out of poverty and achieve their national dreams. So I think there's stuff in there that will appeal to um, Trump folks as well. And, and then the real question that the book spends time on is, okay, if, if there's, these are ideas, if we can agree that we could have better tax systems, do more with global reserves, spend our development finance and aid better, we could spend it on better things, which the book lays out, then how do you get activists, what should activists be doing with the Biden and Harris administration? How should they be thinking, uh, what, where, where is the politics gonna be? And what's going to get policymaker attention? And it talks about how to talk about China, how to talk about vaccines, how to talk about these new dynamics, um, particularly in the international space, where people are so tired of sort of colonial responses to uh, what the United States ought to do in the world. It's not that the United States has always been the problem here, but it, it, it definitely is part of a sort of largely Northern-led, rich country-oriented, charitable model of how we fix things that young people and particularly younger activists have very little time for. So how to talk and think differently about what a more globally balanced activism is about. Because if we don't do that, we're not gonna be relevant to some of these incredibly exciting movements that are happening around the world that we could be useful to but we have to be a bit more humble about it. So it's that kind of thing. So that's that's where the book spends its well uh, spends its time. Now, given my fallibility, what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? 
I think the, the key question is, if you are somebody who wants to get into, into international activism and you are a young person that maybe doesn't already have an obvious job in it, what do you do next and what do you do first? Um, I, I think that's one thing I'm really curious about. And my, and, and, and sort of, because I've been teaching a lot of classes on it and I've been getting that question and it's the one that I feel like I should have uh, uh, thought about a lot. I think where my head is now is if you, if you have a, a passion on a progressive issue, whether it is racial justice, gender justice, climate change, economic inequality, or cleaning up the corruption in politics, the, it is not going to be a linear process where we're going to do one of those first and, every, and all of the rest will have to wait in line. The progressive energy to push the Biden and Harris administration to do the right thing is going to come from all of those sources of progressive power demanding that their voice is heard as a consequence of this election in the next period. And as an international activist, I care about people in the slums in Nairobi and Mexico City and in what's going on in Central America with the hurricanes now and in Ethiopia with the conflict that's going on there. I care about them first. But I know that if we're going to get attention right now to those issues, it's going to be because of a surge of progressivism that says the rules of how power and money are being uh, managed uh, in this country and our world now don't work. And I'm sorry, President Biden, but it's not enough to restore sanity and order after the four years of the Trump administration. We need a transformative vision from you that responds to the people who got you elected. So I would just tell people tap into their own issue, bring that level of energy and look for people who are making the connections between your issue and what's going on more globally. And you know, I, I want to add one thing to that and that's to say, and let's all remember, just like they have the slums of Nairobi, the slums of Mexico City, we have uh, the slums of Appalachia or ghettos and or barrios, and these are the people who we have to show help to us well. Paul O'Brien, okay. Vice President of Oxfam America and the author of Power Switch, How We Can Reverse Extreme Inequality. It's been my honor to have you on Politics Done Right. Thank you so kindly for having been here. Thank you for having me, Egberto. We, man, I, I'm going to tell you something, guys. I really, really enjoyed that uh, interview because it is right down the alley, the things that, you know, we all talk about here. And he really knows and he's working that hybrid thing, you know, having to work with the, the people who run the plutocracy that sort of have a heart at the same time that he's trying to do the right thing. Anyhow, let me go ahead and start talking to my peeps. Bridge MCP says... AOC isn't alone in thinking she should have gotten more than 96 seconds at the Democratic National Convention. Yeah, President Obama did say it. I saw that. I saw that, and I was happy to see him say, you know, you know how President Obama straddled the fence a whole lot. Sometimes it looks like he's super progressive. Sometimes it looks like he's tagging the center. He's just a damn good politician. We got to give him that. He's a damn good politician, and for the most part, you know, a lot of us deep progressives have some issues, but... The guy's a damn good politician. Okay, Michael Rudnin says, I'm, I'm going to come back that, to that comment to Joe Biden and meme it. Yeah, when you meme it, go ahead and send it to me so I can post it, um, Rudnin. Uh, you, you create a nice meme for it. We put it on the Politics and Right page and get it out there. 
the duck that quack have I always convey positive experiences to anyone that shows interest. I got mine from 22 Magazine Gas Hog to a 45 mile per hour hybrid. Wow, that is pretty cool. Um, hey, uh, the duck that quacks, if you want to do a little quick five or ten minute interview to tell us what you did to be zero carbon, I would love to have a program on that, or even if it's a short one on that, because I think, you know, we are, we talk a lot of politics here, but that is politics too. And I am also going to get into some other type of, um, you know, stories like I'm, I'm interviewing some comedians later on today. Uh, and, uh, you know, other kind, I, I want to kind of uh, bring some levity sometimes to what we're doing, keep people interested. Okay, Egberto, Obama isn't progressive. Sorry to tell you. Do me a favor. Google Obama Accelerate the Engine. <laughs> I'm with, look. It's a hard one, Rudnan. It's a hard one when you're straddling two worlds. It's very, very hard. I do think that uh, I know what I know what you're saying, right? And I know what he's become, and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, the system has a way of eating you. But that's why we're here, okay? That's why we're here, Rudnan, and that's why you're doing what you're doing, and that's why you. Whenever people get a little bit too uh, too nice to some people, you're there to say, "But please do remember this." Egberto, remember this, remember this, remember this. Okay. All right. Bridge MCP, power corrupts. Uh, Paul Fleming says that is between a conversation between Paul and somebody else. Uh, let me scroll up to see if there is more to talk about. I just saw a, uh, Linda E says, straddling position has uses, but I feel we also need definite, strong, progressive action. Linda E, I think you also heard... Uh, Paul O'Brien say that. Paul O'Brien is talking about us as progressives forcing the hand of Biden. But one of the first things we have to try to do as well, though, is win both seats in, in, in um, Georgia. Otherwise, it's going to be very, very, very difficult. Michael Rudnan acknowledged if Obama was progressive, he would have persecuted the banksters who crashed the economy in 2008. There's a whole lot of backstory to that. Not have the time to get into that right now, but I, you know, that is it. outwardly that is all what we wanted to do, brother. That is what we wanted to do. But again, other stories. Let's see. I think I just got Bridge says hoping the progressives push hard next year. We're going to push hard. The centrists are going to knock us over. They're going to continue to give us a hard time, but we are going to stay steadfast and moving it. And when we say I hope the progressives, uh, Bridge, you are part of the progressive posse so it's not only they are going to do stuff it's we are going to do stuff meaning you two when we when we decide uh, on actions to take it's all of us all of us completely all right uh let's see uh, every time i scroll up a new message coming we can win the seats with trump telling them not to vote <laughs> i know did you see that was that funny or what uh michael rudnan persecuted sure prosecuted Obama didn't want to look behind, only ahead, as if crime, culture, fraud isn't worth making. And, you know, if you, if you take a look also, you're seeing that Biden is kind of wanting to do the same thing. Paul Fleming says, that was Congress' job. Um, is that the case? Uh, I know they do hearings, but isn't it the Justice Department, though, that should do that? Yo soy Danny. Welcome aboard, yo soy Danny. Uh, do I need to welcome anybody else? Uh, let's see. Uh, Linda, if mega folks, mega folks, uh, get GOP voters in Georgia to not vote. Yeah. But you know what? I think if we, if we vote like we voted 
we are the majority. A lot of people don't don't quite accept that. We are the majority. Let's remember that. We are the majority. The thing about it is we just have to come out and vote. Linda Hayes said he beat me to it. <laughs> anyway, we got to get out of here. I got to prepare for that. I have two more interviews today, guys. I have one with uh, another thing that another gig that I'm doing called uh, the what 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 do we call this? <sighs> you know you know when the mind's starting to go. But anyway, I have the comedians later on today, and I have an immediate gig that I got to do right now. A deeper look, a deeper look. Got to do a deeper look. So, folks, I want to. Th- I know you guys can be anywhere, and you're here with me. So, I, I want to thank you. I want to also ask you, all of you that are listening here, please share our programs. Please go to our Twitter. Uh, Twitter. My handle is Egberto Willis uh, at Egberto Willis. Please go to the Twitter and follow me on Twitter. Please go to our YouTube, and um, and I can put the YouTube link in there. And please go ahead on our YouTube. And subscribe. Even if you don't join, please at least subscribe. Really would love for you to do that. The duck that quack says, I would consider it not a sales job, but a 101 on how to uh, roll carbon down the alley and got very close to net zero. Nirvana still debating yanking the methane oven. I tell you what, um, thank you, John Carter. Thank you. Hey, um, the duck that quacks, drop me a direct message, okay? On, uh, I think we're, if, if we're not friends on Facebook, friend me. If we're if you don't do Facebook, drop me a line on on YouTube or whatever platform. Just let me know this is the duck that quacks. I want to talk to you about that because I want to do a show on that zero carbon because I want to learn myself what you did. So please, that would be very very good for us to bring. And I bet Bridge, wouldn't it be good to have? And John, wouldn't it be good to have uh, the duck that quacks tell us what he did to become almost? He said actually he said he's net zero. Carbon net zero. I want to see what you did. So come on, buddy. Let's do it. Come on, and we'll we'll do a tape. Uh, we'll do a Zoom tape before the show, and then we play the show, and you can see yourself doing the show. What you say? Come on, duck that quacks. I'm I'm throwing this all out in front of everybody else. Jacoby and another one. Great show, EWs as always. Thank you so kindly, guys. Look, I got to get out of here. My name is Egberto Willies. This is politics done right, and you know how I end this. Baby, I say bye-bye. We are what? Out! We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.